You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. My guest today is Dan Lyons, who is the author of Disrupted, My Adventures in the Startup Bubble, and Lab Rats, How Silicon Valley Made Work Miserable for the Rest of Us. He was a writer for HBO's Silicon Valley, and his work as a journalist has been seen in the New York Times, Wired, Vanity Fair, and The New Yorker. His latest book is called STFU, you can figure out what that means, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Enjoy the pod. Dan Lyons, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. You tell a story in the introduction of your new book about talking your way into a marketing role at a software startup that was headed for an IPO. Um, can you tell us what happened? Yeah, I talked my way in, and then I talked my way out. <laughs> that's the bad part. <laughs> yeah, that's the bad part, because I talked my way out of a kind of windfall. But yeah, so I, I was at Newsweek. I had been a journalist, right? Like a very straight up, you know, suit and tie business journalist at Forbes and Newsweek. I was the, finally got to be the tech editor at Newsweek when Newsweek was still Newsweek. It was a big deal. I met amazing colleagues, the whole thing. And got laid off as Newsweek went into a spiral. And I had this crisis, this 52. I was like, what do I do? I'm not gonna, there were no more media jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of a bunch of people who left Newsweek and gone to time, but they they weren't hiring. So I said, you know what? I've been covering tech for all these years. I covered the first dot-com bubble. Now there's another one. I missed the first one. Like, I should get in on this, right? I should just well, my first thing is was just go to a big tech company like Google, get a job there doing speech writing. You know what I mean? Which also would have been really smart, maybe smarter. Mm-hmm. And then I found a startup in Cambridge. I live in Boston, headed for an IPO, growing like crazy. I had friends who were VCs who said, yeah, this place is, you know, that's, this is the place to go. So I went in and just said, hey, I, you know, I want to do marketing and content. And they did a lot of content marketing, um, which consisted of creating stuff. And I had the impression during the interview. So I, I interviewed the two founders. So I thought, like, I'm going to be working with these guys and I'm going to be, you know, they, they wanted to fix their blog. I thought I'll be creating a whole content strategy for the company. Mm-hmm. It'll be a big job. And then I got there and I got, oh, no, no, you're going to work for the CMO. And like, no, you're going to work for the helper to the CMO. And like, no, you're going to be working for this guy who runs the content factory. And like, oh, here's a little room with 12 people in it. And you're going to sit here and write blog posts. Uh, I was like, even then though, I was like, all right, dude, like whatever, you know, I can, uh, 
I wasn't, it was also one of those deals where they go, it's, I think tech does this a lot where they go like, you say, well, what's my job? And like, oh, it's sort of whatever you want to make it. That's right. And I'm like, what? Like, dude, I, I, I did an interview about it later with Callie Crossley at GBH in Boston. And I was like, Callie, it would be like, you get hired here at GBH for the ra- on the radio. And then you show up for a stay and they were like, well, so what do I do? And they go, well, uh, I don't know, whatever you want. I was like, well, what's my time slot? What do I talk about? Like, oh, well, I don't know what it make it. You know, it was like, so it was a job like that. And, um, and it was also very culty and weird and messed up in a lot of ways. And I didn't keep my mouth shut about it because I was a journalist and obnoxious and then getting (laughs) getting booted out. (laughs) And then you like, how long, how long was it before then you went back and tallied up what you would have made had you stayed oh that was years later so i i probably got booted in 2015 mm-hmm. and it was 2020 during the pandemic um when for some reason i hadn't even ever looked at the company the start like i put it in the i mean i wrote a book about it but then i put it in the rearview mirror yeah and i looked up the stock price and i calculated so i got thrown out after 20 months so you know i vested uh, 20 months worth of options. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then sold them when I left in this like fit of peak or just thinking like this company sucks. I sold them and got, I don't know, 60,000 bucks or something. And, uh, so I looked it up and said, if I had stayed, what if I just held my shares? Cause the stock had gone like crazy yeah. during that. Right. Remember, uh, right before the, the COVID it was, it had yep. gone like $300 from 10 when I was mm-hmm. there. And I calculated what my, the options I had were, then I calculated if I had stayed for four years, invested completely, I'd have $8 million. And I was like, dude, like, mm, that's this, a lot of this, money. This in it. And I went in knowing, like, you're going to have to bite your tongue. You got to shut up. Journalists have a hard time corporate doing corporate. And I was like, I can do it. I can do it. You know, I felt like uh, it, was just, it was a reality show, like Survivor Startup. You know, <laughs> can you drink this much corporate Kool Aid every day and pretend you love it? Yes, I can. I was like, you know, that pot of gold, I'm like, that'll keep me going. But yeah. Well, leaving aside, okay. So leaving aside the fact that maybe $8 million isn't worth selling your soul. And I think that is something that we could, that, that we think is fair. The other origin story of this book is probably more important, not even probably, is more important, which yeah. this almost cost you, your wife and your family. This This problem of talking. Right. It was all happening at the same time. So like, like literally how many months, four or five months before the lockdown, October, 2019, um, a, a bunch of stuff hit the wall at the same time. Our marriage had been in trouble for a long time. And we decided like, let's, let's separate, see if we can just, you know, I mean, think we were going to get divorced or thought it would go down. Let's just, so I moved out. I'm living in this like rented house. I had teenage kids, twins, boy and a girl. I, was trying to see them as much as I could. You know, I didn't really want to be divorced or even away from my kids. But I also realized, like, I'm very difficult to live with. <laughs> and, um, so, um, and then, you know, the lockdown happened. A bunch of my work blew up. And yeah, I sort of realized, actually, I was having, a, I was texting with my agent about some project. And then that hadn't worked out or whatever. And I literally texted, you know, yeah, I know you could blame this person or that person. They took that out of context. But let's be honest, 
none of this would have happened if I hadn't said that one sentence. And if I could just learn to STFU, I literally use those things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my own fault, basically. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back like, wow, that's a that's not a bad book idea. And I was like, yeah, you think so? Like maybe, yeah, maybe because, you know, Mark Manson had that book, the whatever thing about not giving an F. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of a sassy book. Maybe it could be a funny book. Right. And uh, so, 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 and I also thought, yeah, if I could learn to shut up, maybe I could get my, get my family back. I could stop being so obnoxious and driving my wife crazy. So it was sort of two things. One was helping my life and then telling the story of that journey in a book. I remember way back when we started this podcast and we're almost at 400 podcasts, which is just amazing to me. But in the beginning, like first 25, I had Gretchen Rubin on. Um, Many people know Gretchen and she was the one who introduced me to the term me search uh, that so many of uh, individuals like herself and academics get into their particular area of research because it's me search. (laughs) It is. What is the thing that I am seeing in me that I maybe don't want to see in me or I want to understand more of. And it strikes me. And I don't know if the timing works on this, but it felt like the book, you kind of wrapped it all together. Like, well, if I write the book, it can also be a journey of understanding how to improve myself and get my, my wife and my family back and maybe not also blow myself up because the, the idea of recognizing the, that you're the lowest common denominator is fairly rare in my experience. Individual. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the guy who says, uh, you know, I've been married five times and, you know, they're all, they're all bad. You know, <laughs> I've right. had 10 girlfriends. And I'm like, wait, has it ever occurred to you? You're like the one common denominator in that situation. It's you. It might be you. I don't know. Like what's the common, right. But yeah, I think I put it in the book that I did this. I think in AA, they call it a searching and fearless moral inventory. So, you know, you mm. sit down and you have to, it, 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 it is awful, right? To sit down and go yeah. like, okay, you know what? You can be angry, like, well, she said that, and they did this, and this, and that. Like, yeah, but like, could you have avoided that? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. you could have. Mm-hmm. You know, if uh, if you were not so impulsive or compulsive, you know, whatever. But yeah, no, it's it's. I never heard that term, me search. I've met Gretchen. My agent is her agent. Oh, funny. So, which is why I'm like, I'm like a, a mole. I'm, you know, I'm like not an important client, but. Uh, but yeah, she does that. It was the happiness project, right? Which yeah. is such a big deal. And I think, and her deal was, I'm going to spend a year trying to become happy. And each month was a, a different theme, right? That's right. And so I thought, I, I wasn't using that as a model, but you're right. It's kind of like um, taking material from your own life and then researching it, combining it with research. Who was my book disrupted was the same way. And, and the only way those work is if you're honest, like you really have to be honest yes. at, about your, about your flaws. Like people will, I, I deal with people sometimes who want to write a book and it's about something they did, you know, it's often like people want a ghostwriter, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, but, but I, I want to be the hero of the book. You know what I mean? I want to look, you know, like they don't, uh, somebody will think, well, let's not put that in the book. I'm like, no dude, that's, that's the key to the book. 
that moment when you screwed mm-hmm. up mm-hmm. or where you fell short, like that is the, that's the only thing that makes it work. And like in my book, Disrupted, there was some stuff that pretty close to the bone about like losing my job at Newsweek and thinking like, what if I never work again? Like, sure. Shit. And people, you know, my neighbor, you know, your neighbors and friends, you had this too, right? They all read your book. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they go like, Oh, dude, I didn't know that was going on. Like, and I'm, yeah, oh, I'm surprised you put that in a book, like for everybody to see. But it's like, if you don't, yeah, you know, what do you have? That's my my son, I have a 17 year old son. We're both big fans of Bob Dylan, and I was listening to Blood on the Tracks. Yep, for the eight millionth time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's all about his breakup, right? Mm-hmm. And then. If you see it in that context, like, oh, he he was a human being. He wasn't just some pop star, right? These aren't just songs. Like, this was a guy in a tremendous amount of pain writing these songs. And they're sometimes really angry. Like, you know, I hate you. You're awful. But it's just the whole thing. And I realized, like, yeah, that's a guy, like, really laying himself bare. Like, really, really raw. And I thought, well, then I thought, well maybe that's why that works. I don't know. But... Well, here's here's here. I'll put it this way, which is like, who cares about your book if you're not going to be honest? Like, I, I like I, no no one is craving perfidy. No no one is saying like, you know what I really love? I want you to talk about all your successes and ignore your fiascos. That's going to be really interesting to me. It's like, and 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 you know, we we teach this in terms of our work because you know at, at a place like Second City and in improvisation in general, we talk about making mistakes work for you. Yeah. There's a guy Rick Thomas who's a great teacher who talks about falling into the crack in the game. This idea of like, oh, when something opens up and it's completely wrong, what an incredible opportunity! And this is oh. this isn't this is what innovators do, and this is what artists do, and and like and and individuals can can do that as as well, and that that's part of what we try to get across. And I think that um, uh, what's unique and you're unique in that you're a little more uh, self-deprecating, but I think that is also the writer in you, the artist in you that allows you to do that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the sort of uh, brag tales are, are those, are, those are the, when those get pitched to me, it's like, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. I agree. I'd never heard that term falling into the cracks, but that's such a good idea because your instinct is to leap back from it, right? Get away from the it. abyss, like you, you step too close to that. Ah, right. And this is this is Kierkegaard's existential leap of faith. This is Jet, a Kerouac in the Beat Generation. This, this is all of those. It's a great tradition in terms of American literature, at least, and 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 uh, and others like Kier, uh, like Kierkegaard. But it is it is that idea of sort of facing the unknown, and I think especially today. And I just finished uh, my podcast next Friday, or this upcoming Friday, is with um, Gene Twenge, who's wrote a book on all the generations. It's like a 600-page book from silent to what she calls the polars or alphas. That's the current group. But but recognizing that you know there is a real epidemic in our country right now, and this is primarily Gen Z. Suicide's up. Loneliness is up. You know, that, that all, all these sort of struggles, I have kids, you have kids. I mean, this, it's like, and, and you know, what are we going to do with this? And ignoring it isn't going to help. And, you know, now that we have all this technology, which is great, but also can cut the other way. Um, 
it, it, I, I think we are poised for truth telling, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, if, I guess you're right. You know, uh, well, I think everybody likes, you know, a good story, right? Yep. At, at any time. Um, it is very distressing that situation of Gen Z. And that's in the book, some of it yep. about, I sort of tie it to social media, but, you know, isolation. Um, I think actually using social media, and I, I do, but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of crazy making involved in that. And um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where to go with that, but. Let's talk about let's talk about the uh, a term I had never heard of, which was talcoholism. Oh, yeah. So that's a real thing, right? Yeah, and yeah, talcoholics. And again, this was like like so many of these things. I, you know, you know when you write something, or if you do improv, right? Yeah. Some of these things are things you didn't know were there. <laughs> like, you know, serendipity, right? Yeah. And so I think I was starting off. I'm trying to write the proposal, and I thought, oh, I should come up with a term talkaholic. That's a good idea. Cause I'm thinking this is sort of like addiction, the thing I mm-hmm. have, right? Mm-hmm. And uh it's so like Google it and it turns out, oh, somebody already thought of that. And I'm like, oh, damn it, right? But then I look and I go, oh, it's super fascinating. It's like these two researchers, husband and wife, in the 90s at West Virginia University, who study people who don't who are profoundly shy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um sort of said, well, let's look at the other end. Are there people who talk too much? Well, yes, we know some. Although communication theory at the time said, no, there's no such thing as talking too much. But yes, there is. And I said, but are there people who are beyond that who essentially you would define a talkaholic as someone who speaks even when they know it's going to hurt them, who can't stop, right? Who knows they'd be better off not to talk and still talks. And so they did a study, they came up with a questionnaire, and they measured all these. They used kids at uh, West Virginia University. Fine. So I got to find these people, and right? I got to find them now. Where are they? You know, it's 30 years ago. Well, the, the husband had passed away about 10 years before, but I found the wife retired in West Virginia, profoundly shy woman. Mm. Like her husband was the talkaholic, she was the other. You get on the phone, and I'm trying to be like, you know, my NPR voice. Like, yeah. <laughs> not, not, not be scary. Like, blah, 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 you know, and, uh-huh. uh, and very hesitant. And so I said, well, how did you come up with this? And she said, because my husband was one. And I was yeah. like, oh, okay. You were like me, sir, right? You're studying mm-hmm. yourselves, right? And she turns out to be this like amazing woman. Like, I've, I didn't ask how old she is, but like, um, and we became friends. We started mm-hmm. ta- calling each other once in a while and, I, as I did the rest of my research, I'd hear stories about her husband, who was apparently this really accomplished, but also like the accomplished guy who's super nice to some young grad student, you know. And I would call him and say, "Hey, I just heard another story about Jim. You want to hear it?" You know. And she's lovely. So that was the other thing. And you know, you probably know this too. You know, as you're doing your book, you meet all these people, and you yeah. like, I really like them, you know. And yeah. In addition to being fascinating. Yeah, so talkaholics are about 5% of the population. It turns out I have a bunch of friends who I think would qualify. And I took her s- survey, the questionnaire, and I put it in the book. She gave me permission. So I know. Probably, I took it. I took the test. But you were probably low. I was, I will tell you, I was 29. Yeah. 
Well, the lowest is 10, right? Right. So I was right on, I mean, you're 30 and above. So I'm right. I just missed the cut. Yeah. 30 to 40 is like the, the, you're probably, you're, uh, maybe you're talking about like 40 to 50 is like, boom, done. And I was a 50. And, uh, cause every question they said, anyway, but, um, I find that people who do a lot of interviewing, um, and who are good at it tend to be listeners. You think of them as, oh, I make a living talking, but like, no, no, man, you make a list living listening, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, so I, over and over again, I hear that my wife is very low, you know? So you see the problem right away. I think it's a fun part of the book though. Cause you can, Me too. you can just, you can fill it out. I actually created a little, or someone else created it for me, a little domain. You can look up talkaholic scale and go to a page where it's, it's not a very good looking page. It literally is just questions, but um, yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a funny condition. And again, it's like with alcoholism, you sort of have to say, okay, I have this and now what am I going to do about it? Because it doesn't go away. This is not something it, it is. Yeah. Like I, I asked her like, okay, so What's what causes it and how do you fix it? And she's like, Well, we don't know what causes it, and but we know you can't fix it. <laughs> like, oh, that's great. And then she passed me on to a guy who had done a bunch of research. One of their colleagues followed had followed on with it and found that it has to do with the wiring in your brain. Yeah. And and he said, So that's why you can't cure it. But I had the idea that, well, yeah, an alcoholic in, can't cure alcoholism, but you can develop the discipline to to not drink. And maybe you don't always succeed or you go up and down, but um, you can develop a set of things that help you. I even thought at one point, like, they should have a thing, Talkaholics Anonymous. There should be, I should start that. I should start this group, you know? Um, friends oh, those meetings would be insufferable. Can you imagine? It'd those be meetings. Awful. It'd be oh so awful. And, and the thing, <laughs> wouldn't it be great? See, because my feeling is like, Talkaholics love each other. I have this guy... <laughs> This electrician came over to work, do some work in my house, and he saw a stack of the books, and he's like, oh, you, you must have read, read a book. And I was like, yeah. And what's it about? It's telling me, he's like, oh, I need that, but I talk too much. And I'm like, oh, shit. Oh, no. I'm sitting there like, okay, I'm like the cocaine addict, and I'm yeah. doing really well. But then this guy shows up, and he's like, he's got a stash? I got a big bag of cocaine. I'm like, no, I don't want to do cocaine. <laughs> and like, you know, 12 hours later, we're like, you know, yeah. And, Seriously, it was like three hours later, he finished the little tiny job. <laughs> it's funny. So uh, there was a point in the book, early in the book, where, where you really sort of got me. And it relates to a thing that I've talked about when I've done TEDx's and, and other t- sort of talks. And that is when my kids were little. So my, both my, my wife and I both have worked at Second City our entire adult lives. My wife's a tenured professor of, of comedy and improvisation and, you know, uh, and my son, Nick, just a natural improviser. Like when he got into classes, he could just do it. He was great at it. Uh, my daughter, Nora, not so much. And to the point that we had a bit when we'd be at the dinner table um, and she'd start going on and on and on, we'd be like, that's one of Nora, that's a Nora log. And you have oh dialogues. Oh you were called the dialogues. I'm like, oh my God, this is like the same thing. And so actually we used an improv exercise to help train her, which I think would have been something that might've been useful for you. Uh, we did a game called one word story around the table where we tell a story one word at a time. Oh, that's so cool. Very hard for her 
not to do a couple words, but she wanted to win because this is a thing also with many of us. And, and the winning kind of overtook. And so then it was one word. But then she had to realize that saying hippopotamus when a the would have been better also didn't let her win. So it allowed her to sort of realize what is what is it to co-create a conversation, and which is so essential to our work. And something that I think, and this is just something I don't know if you know this about my field, but the bulk of people who take improv classes, because it's thousands and thousands of thousands, it's not like they all think they're going to get on the main stage here and go to Saturday Night Live or go on to a television show. Easily 60 to 70% of them are here to work on themselves. And and many of those are people who feel like, I just don't know how to talk. And and really what they're saying is, I don't know how to listen. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. A, I didn't know there's that many people. And B, the the idea that they're taking... Well, I mentioned that in my book. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I... I I I didn't steal it from you, but I stole it from nope. someone else. But the idea that you know, um, it felt that true. Had, uh, that, yeah, but you you know that that's if you're trying to teach yourself. I was thinking if you're trying to teach yourself how to, I think it was in the chapter on listening, and it's it's very hard for me to do this. I have a tendency to be like all of us. Like you're talking, and I'm just sitting there waiting for you to finish so I can say what I want to say. Right or. And so I was saying, you know, the, the exercise, I think, which is, you tell me, is this what you do? But I imagine you sit there and you cannot have any preconceived notion or line. You really just have to, whatever that person says, take it in and go with it. Um, I would really benefit from a class like that. I should try it because. Yeah. Well, another exercise is called last word which is you're having conversation, one rule, one rule for both of you, which is your sentence, your response has to start with the last word the other person said. I don't want to write these down. I want to do the one word thing because the four of us sit at dinner Mm -hmm. and my daughter is a monologue or two. Yep. And, um, and my son can be very, um, you know, keeps to himself. But I think that would be a plus. It would just be fun. You must crack up when you do. Oh it, no, it's right? it's hilarious. It's it, it's a fun and and they would do it in the car. And there's other and there's other games. But I mean, it, it is. And I think the the idea too. I don't know if you you probably don't know this, and my audience has heard the story a million times. But the the origin story of Second City, all these games and exercises that everyone from Mike Nichols, Elaine May, Alan Arkin to Colbert, Tina Fey, Steve Carell, Keegan Michael Key learned were created by a social worker at Jane Addams Hull House on the south side of Chicago in the 20s and 30s, whose job was to better assimilate immigrant children coming into her care. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah. So this emanates from social work. And so it's, 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 that came first. Her son, Paul Sills, studying at the University of Chicago, loved them, turned them into theater, which became the second city. So it's not weird by any stretch that then they get used not just in corporate settings. We work a lot in the caregiving space. We work with kids kids and adults on the spectrum, you know, all, all those sorts of things. But because this is the other thing is like communication is hard and we make an assumption that all of us are on the same plane and that assumption is correct, is incorrect across the board. What do you mean on the same plane? That, that's, that, that like everyone's going to understand us and we're going to be understood when the reality is that happens maybe 20% of the time based on the research I've looked at. And the rest of the time, 
we're we're off. We're hearing a thing we want to hear. We're not providing any sort of or, or trying to look for context, and we're sort of caught in whatever thing we're in. And we assume this conversation meant one thing, and then I mean, I mean, it's amazing to me that we can actually that we're not crashing into each other when we go outside, you know, to walk around. That that to me, it, it's like it's a modern miracle. We should all be you know praising Allah or God or whatever you believe for that. But um, but in reality, too. Uh, the, the people who are super, super good at their jobs, the people that we admire and we look at and we're like, how do they like, you know, do this stuff? They are such keen listeners and observers that they recognize that a lot is being said, maybe underneath the words, in between the words, in the spaces, in the posture. And this is what great art is. And I imagine, you know, you were on the writing staff of Silicon Valley and you look at that incredible show and, 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 and yeah, the writing is terrific, but I think one of the things that made it bring to life is that acting was sort of like, this is very specific to a generation at a time in a context uh, that was as much about the words as it was about the behaviors. And that was all improv, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was on the writing team, and so the, the depressing thing would be, you know, I would leave after writing season. I didn't stay for shooting, but I'd leave and I'd know what the... The episodes were now a lot of it was also cut up in editing, but you'd get there and be like, none of that was written. They would, in, in terms of, they would shoot the script. Yep. And then they would say, let's do a couple more takes and you guys just go crazy, you know? Right. And of course, everything they did was better than what we wrote, or most of it, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So structurally, maybe it held together. Even that, they would, Mike Judge would break up the structure. But, but yeah, no. So all, all, I think a lot of the best stuff in that show was pure improv. By guys who are very good at improv. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, I actually posted on LinkedIn one of the, you quote a, a Japanese proverb. I put it on LinkedIn, a lot of people loved it, which is, uh, quote, the Japanese who treasure silence and can't stand noisy people have a proverb. If the bird had not sung, it would not have been shot. <laughs> <laughs> you got traction on LinkedIn with that? I, I did. I got a little bit of traction on LinkedIn with that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um <laughs> Which, which runs counter to P.J. Miller, right? I mean, or those guys. Well, yes and no. Because what, you think those guys are, I mean, because I think. I, th- I think those guys get themselves in a lot of trouble. <laughs> oh, 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 right, right, right. But I mean. And, and, their ge- and, and because their genius is both. And I think one of the problems that we have in contemporary society especially when it comes to comedy and arts. And I'm not one of these like, like folks who's going to say that everyone should be able to say whatever is on their mind 24 seven and you just all have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, uh, but by the same token, artists take chances. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, we, we have a phrase that we have used for years at second city called dare to offend. I don't know that I use that phrase now very often because it's so prone to misunderstanding. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the first thing I did two seasons on Silicon Valley. So the and I think it was every year the first day, the showrunner would talk about the there was a, a lawsuit, I think it involved yeah, no, it involved friends. Mm-hmm. There was a writer on Friends who complained about stuff in the room that was offensive yep. to that person. Yeah. And then it, it somehow it went to court or whatever and the, the the decision finally was that you know you're in in a context where you should be able to say anything, so it's it's uh, you know all, all all rules are off. You know, it's all bad. You say anything you want, and I think was a way of 
well, most of those people probably knew that already, but people like me, I didn't know that. And um, I guess it was a way to keep people from holding back. Um, but even there now, I think in a writing room, I think it's not, I don't think it's uh, as freewheeling maybe as it was. But. Well, it's, it's, it's again, you know, generational changes. And one of the things you write about in the book, which I think is really important to understand and, and I think it is unique to where you and I are in our life cycle and the kind of jobs we've had. You say, quote, instead of blasting messages at customers and trying to persuade them to buy the product you have made, you listen to them and find out what they need. Product development is about iteration and collaboration, running experiments, failing fast, and learning from mistakes. That is completely different to what it was when we first got into the world of business. Yeah, Totally. Right. Totally. It was like you make the car. Maybe you build it thinking, you know, what people want. Right. But then it's just. Yeah. And then you just go out and tell everybody why they need rich Corinthian leather. Right. Or You know, whatever it is, like you sell the thing you got. Yeah. I I actually. I mean, that's I picked that up. That's pretty common now in Silicon Valley. Not everybody does it well. There's a guy named Steve Blank who actually created Lean Startup, which Eric Reese then kind of took and made a thing out of. But And he, he teaches a class at Stanford for aspiring entrepreneurs and how to build a startup. And most of them end up, or a lot of them end up getting funded by the end of the class. And the whole thing is, okay, you have this idea that this thing would be so cool. This would be so great. Why do you think that? All right. So I want you to go talk to at least 100 people mm-hmm. in that field. And listen more than you talk. Mm-hmm. What's the problem they have? Don't say, would you like this? Just ask them what they like. Pull stuff out of them. And then, then if you think there's something, it probably won't be what you originally thought it was. It might be something radically different. But then go build that. Right. So start with the problem. Start with the customer. Work backwards. And then, yeah, do it in small increments, you know, minimum viable product. You show that to the customers again. You get feedback. I mean, that's, yeah, I think that's the, as sort of conventional wisdom now in Silicon Valley, not that everybody does it, but, um, um, and I think, I think it applies in other things too, like in communications, which I do a lot of thinking and working around. It's like, you can start from the inside out. What's the message we want to convey mm-hmm. versus what's the message they want to hear? Not pandering, but what's, what is it that they are curious about? I don't know if you do this when you do keynotes. Like I, I don't do enough of them to really have a, a thing I crank out, but I always try to find out, well, who's the audience? Oh, totally. And like, and what do they, they care about? What's yeah. going to, what's going to resonate? No, I always look for, uh, so I just did this thing for Nestle and it was all of Nestle in Canada. Wow. And I asked them, I go, what's the thing that they all know that, that people don't talk about? And they're like, Oh, Nestle nice. And I'm like, is Nestle nice, like Minnesota nice and, or frankly, Canadian nice. And they're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's completely where everyone's nice to each other, but they don't mean it. And, um, oh. and so I used the term Nestle nice and it got this like response. I'm like, Oh, hilarious. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was as simple as that. So, and then, and then knowing that it's sort of the idea of like, okay, how can I help you with that? Which is, uh, in, in Utah. So we have a mutual friend, Kim Scott. Oh, right. Right. Okay. This is the radical candor thing. It's like the nicest thing you can do 
is tell someone the truth, but it's not nice if they don't trust you or understand you got their back. So it requires work to get there. If someone like it's like why couldn't I have been with Kim friends with Kim thirty years earlier when I when I was actually running things here and could have used that because I didn't. Uh, but you know, knowing it now, it's like oh that that's really valuable information of like when I understand that there's all these different properties that 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 consist of around feedback that's good or good feedback in particular. We have to create safety, right? Yes, that's psychological like, safety, mm-hmm. right? And that's, I think, something has been lost in work culture uh, in the last 20 years. Of that I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, if you have the psychological safety to think like, okay, I can make a mistake, get corrected, yeah, and not lose my job, stay right. here, keep doing it, which uh, makes a huge, huge I, I, I suppose that's the same in, in every context. I was thinking about therapy. You go to a show. Oh, it's very tied into therapy. Like you can't go in week one and the therapist goes, you know, well, here's the thing. You're all screwed up and this is how it is and blah, 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 and go fix it. Like, you know, the in the Sopranos, the one where, where um, uh, Tony Soprano's wife goes to um, goes to a shrink mm-hmm. who finally tells her the truth. And he's like, I won't take your money, but here's the deal. You should leave your husband. He's a criminal and you'll never be happy. You know, mm-hmm. but I feel like Okay, it worked in the show, right? And, yeah. <laughs> and, and he didn't want to see her as a patient, right? But, um, uh, you know, I think in real therapy, I, I sometimes thought like the first six months or whatever is really just developing a relationship where you trust them enough. Maybe you never get to that, but you trust them enough to them to start kind of easing you into the idea that, you know, you kind of, well, you're the common denominator in all those breakups, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. Gonna hear that until I no, trust, no. right? That's right. Yeah. Um, in a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story. Before we do that, you talk about a, a person I've really admired, and I don't know her, but I've read enough s- stories about her. And this was one I had not actually. Uh, surprisingly read about it. I knew a little bit about it, but it's Indira Nui, uh, who is the CEO of Pepsi. Um, I've got a great story about her that's not in the book, your book, but I'd love you to talk about what, why you included her in, in, in this book. All right. And then trade, I want to hear yours. I'll try to keep mine short. So, so, um, well, I really admired her, um, as a CEO and I read her book and, um, but I had, I had somehow read about her, um, in, uh, in in other contexts, I, I don't know her, but uh, I have a a friend who's a friend with someone who knows her, and so I had heard for a long time about. Oh man, my friend is a woman. It's like man, Indra Nui, man, she kills it. She's like this powerful woman. She's like Mike, my, my idol. This yeah, woman. and yeah. So <laughs> she climbed to the top of PepsiCo, became the CEO. Also interesting in her book, um, she's very honest about her mixed feelings about her kids. And like, I had this great job, but it came at the cost of my family. And I sometimes really wonder if I did that and regret things. Mm. I'm like, wow, that's pretty heavy for a CEO. But anyway, gee, th- there's a, a, a corporate raider named Nelson Peltz who liked to pick on uh, food companies. That was his background, but also liked to pick on companies run by women. Yeah. And um, decide. And his big thing was he'd go in, cause a big furor, and try to break these companies up because PepsiCo owns all these brands. And so started attacking her. 
which is another way you do it. You go to the board, you try to work behind her back, you put out, you wrote this big open letter to the world, and basically, you know, you're incompetent. Mm-hmm. And the whole trick I realized is to get her so distracted with that and fighting him that she does make mistakes. She had made this also, she had come up with a plan. It was a long-term plan. It's going to take 10 years for this to work, but this is where we need to take the company. A very brave thing for a CEO to do mm-hmm. when you're trying to manage quarter to quarter. And and she didn't take the fight. Yeah. She just kept doing what she's doing. She says in her book, like, uh, you know, she, or somewhere else, like she would make a point, you know, she, when she drove to work, she'd get out of the car and she had to walk in this long walk where people were looking out the window. And she made a point of always coming in, smiling, I'm looking good, not coming in like, you know? And she said, you know, people need to see that. And so she, she won. She just like kept putting numbers on the board and, beat this guy until finally he had to admit he was beaten. And then she let him save face. So, well, you can have one seat on the board. And it's going to be this guy who you, you did the same trick to a former CEO and you won. Mm -hmm. So he can be on the board. Okay. And then, you know, she went on and retired as one of the most successful CEOs uh, of her, of her generation, but it was just that ability to be quiet, not take the, she, they would issue statements on when they did the open letter, their response didn't come from her. Mm. It came from someone else. Like, I, you know, I'm above this. Yeah. It was, it was brilliant. But what's your story? So actually, um, uh, I just talked about this about a week ago. Uh, TJ Miller, who was, uh, on Silicon Valley was in town in Chicago and, uh, performing at, um, the improv, I think in the suburbs. And he had texted me and said, Hey, I haven't literally, we, we talked, we've texted, we've emailed, but I hadn't seen him probably in 20 years. And he said, what do you want to get a coffee? And I was like, great. Uh, the coffee was actually, he was shooting a documentary and he wanted me to be on the documentary. Never said this. That's fine. (laughs) So I meet him at this comedy club. Uh, and, uh, we're sitting and we're talking because I hired him at, at Second City a long, long time ago. And he, he was unusual in the sense that he was a stand up and uh, he was studying improv, wasn't like the best at it, but was very talented and very funny. And and I think did quite well here. He left before, you know, he, he could get on a resident stage and who knows if, if he would or not. But he had said to me uh, during the interview, he goes, I, I don't know if you remember this, but my mom and dad came to a show and you took my mom aside afterwards and said, you should know your son is really, really talented. I don't know what that's going to mean with him at second city, but I have no doubt that he is going to be successful in his career. And I just think it's important. You know that. And he had, he, he reflecting on it. He was like, wow, you have no idea how, how um, uh, much that meant to me and my mom. And, and I'm like, I, I think I did what I didn't know what I was doing was this thing that Inder Nui used to do, yeah. which is, of course, as you know, uh, she would send letters to people in her C-suite and send letters to their parents to say what a great job their kids were doing for her. And this is the most genius thing you could ever possibly do because you are not only making this parent so proud, you are doing the thing for that kid because we're all we're all sons and daughters at some point. And, and it's just, it's, it's a beautiful way uh, of recognizing a human and where they belong, not just sitting in their job at work, but where they come from. Uh, and, and I just, I was like, I just like, that's, you don't hear of CEOs doing that. I know. 
yeah, that struck me too. That same story blew my mind, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah, you're telling them thank you. You're also, and she, you know, her mother lived with her when we yeah. did with the kids. And she talks about how her mother would always bring her down to earth. She'd come home and be like this. And the mother would be like, hey, look, did you go get the milk? Yeah. You're supposed to pick up milk on the way home. And like, yeah, you're a big shot there, but here you're the mom, you know, mm-hmm. and kept her very grounded. Yeah, it was not like she was. And she writes a lot about her own family, her own kids and trade-offs. And I thought, wow, that is brilliant. You write to those people and say, I know you, A, you've done a great job. You could also convey to their family, I know you miss dad sometimes because he has to travel and he's yeah. doing this and that. And he he does a great job at what he does. You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I've been thinking about this whole return to office debate. And I think both sides are just talking across each other. Agreed. And and you could, no, it doesn't occur to anyone to go, hey, Let's just sit down and listen. Tell me, why do you not want to come back? What's so great about that? And then the other side, well, why do you want me to come back? And I think there's, on the side of the leadership, often it's like people like me, I guess like you, like we're older white guys. We used to work this way. We like the way that worked and we kind of want it back. Yep. We kind of, come on, everybody, you know, get on board, you know, and we don't like change. How much is that? Like, how much can you be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and be Mm -hmm. honest with yourself as a leader? Like, can I at least entertain that thought? But um, and I think it begins with listening. You know, who's a good listener it was Bill Marriott, the guy who, uh, ran Marriott. He inherited it from his dad. He was the second guy yeah. and he tells a story. Do you know the story about him and his best, the most important four words or what do you think? Mm-hmm. He learned this from Eisenhower. You know, mm-hmm. that was such a big deal. Eisenhower came over. They're going to go quail hunting, but it was freezing cold. And they said, what do you want to do? Uh, you know, I don't know if Eisenhower was president yet, but like, what do you want to go shoot the quail or do you want to stay in and hang out by the fire? And Eisenhower turns to Bill Merritt, who's a young guy, and said, I don't know, Bill, what do you think? And Bill said, Oh, I know. they ended up staying by the fire. And he said, But I realized like that's why Eisenhower was so effective, like Roosevelt mm-hmm. and Churchill and all these other guys, because he was inviting them in. Yeah, you think, right? And and then Marriott had this great thing about whether you know, he would always try to meet frontline workers and consult them and listen to them. He said, you know, I wouldn't always do what they wanted. I wouldn't always take their advice, but I'd sort of get buy-in because they would feel like they had been listened to, they had been respected, they had been heard, and they were more likely to say, okay, then I'll go along with whatever this decision. And I'm like, yeah, right. Why are we not doing that right now? Right? Yeah. Uh, Mike Norton at Harvard calls us the IKEA effect. And it's the idea that people who uh, feel that they are part of creating something put a greater value in that thing. So classically, Second City, you know, we go to the audience for suggestions and they get, and people feel like they wrote the show. It's like, <laughs> you didn't, but God bless. Like, that's where we want you to feel that you're at least a part of it. So you that, were, is, right? that is you this were thing. A part of it. You threw the yeah. line out, right? I, yeah. No, I think that's what makes it such a compelling experience, right? Yeah. 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 Even if you're not the one who called out the idea that you were there, <laughs> you know, your yeah. energy. Sure. You're a part of it. All right. We always end the podcast with asking for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yeah. And in fact, it was taking a job that involves saying yes and. So I got Great. asked to work on Silicon Valley and I had, um, I was working at that software company that I ended up getting booted out of and they let me take a hiatus. And I remember thinking, God, I'm 52. 
you know, or 53, whatever. I had developed a couple of TV shows. I kind of always wanted to, you know, I'm going to get famous. I'm going to not famous. I'm going to go work in Hollywood and have my own show. And so finally someone said to me out of the blue, I get this call, you know, Hey, they, if they get renewed, they want to know, will you come for season two? And I remember thinking, that's really scary. I have a real job. I have kids. I have a wife, mm-hmm. house, a mortgage, you know, and I'm thinking about, yeah, but like, if I say yes, maybe it would lead to something else. And I don't even know what, but so, yeah. So I said yes. And, um, and then I got in the situation that was very scary, like mm-hmm. super scary and intimidating. And I was not particularly great at it. I had certain strengths, but most of the time I was sitting and listening. And, but it was in that room, it was all, you know, yes. And you don't want to be like, well, that's not right. That's right. right. So, um, but yeah, that would be it. And I think it, I think I really grew from it. Although I didn't, I didn't end up being like, I'm going to, now I'm going to be a writer in Hollywood. Um, but yeah, it was, it was that. And I, I think the fact that it was a little scary, I, I think I was open to it, but I said, yeah. yes, I'm glad I said yes. Yeah. Well, that, uh, I tell this story often, which is we did a, um, a project with Lyric Opera Chicago and Renee Fleming. And I developed it for about a year, and then we did the show called Second City Guide to Opera, and she got her friend Sir Patrick Stewart to co-host it. We got Sir Patrick to improvise uh, with the uh, Improvised Shakespeare Company. Thomas has done work with them, Thomas Miloditch. And uh, the first time he saw us do it, he's like, you're mad that you think I would do this. And we're like, you know, do you not want to do it? He goes, no, I'll do it. And he, he was so brilliant. Uh, they are as well. And, and the opening went, went great. And we're having a beer afterwards. And the thing that Sir Patrick sort of said was, you know, what was incredible about that is that I was scared and I don't get scared anymore. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And at that age and at his level. It's Sir Patrick Stewart. It's Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? But there's still things that scare him. Or he wanted, and he wanted to be, and he didn't know that. And so that, and so now... He pops up every now and again to perform with these guys. You're not allowed to videotape it or audio record it. It's very strict, but he, he does it probably once, twice, three times a year. Um, sort of feeling that, that, that feeling again. No kidding. You know, I, my daughter is, she's moving to Chicago. She's going to be a student at Northwestern in the music school. So right. it's in the arts, right? Yeah. In the arts. And she's yeah. had, she had a teacher for a year at New England Conservatory who every week she would go in and every week come out crying, you know, mm. plays piano. It was brutal, yeah. brutal you know? And, um, and, and, you know, since she went to this music camp that she shouldn't have gone into, but she did somehow. And then she shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have gone into Northwestern. It was like, but she did. And, I told her, I've told her a bunch of times, it's like, but you know, no matter what you ever do or want to do, you're going to find there's going to be some asshole who's going to tell you you can't. Mm-hmm. No, you're not good enough. You never do it. Don't bother. Or you're going to make a fool of yourself. And I said, you know, and then the thing is, you might, mm-hmm. you know, you might. You know, I went to grad school to be a writer, a short story writer, fiction, and thinking like, if I blow this, people, everybody I know is going to laugh at me. Yeah. Right. Oh, you thought you were so cool. You went off to Hollywood. Ooh, you know. I said, like, just do it anyway. Like, if you don't, the regret is you're going to be like, I, what if I had? Yeah. It's worse to live with that than with the fact that I did it and I failed. You can deal with that. 100%. But, um, well, we could probably talk for it. My daughter's a very, very brave young woman. I'll tell you what, she's pretty amazing. But 
I love it. The book is called STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut in an Endlessly Noisy World. Dan Lyons, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Getting the Yes Hand is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Ben Anderson from WGN, and we get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive